what you mean. I think the American remake of that eyeball movie, they operate on a kid, if I'm not mistaken. And he has his eyeballs replaced and he can see ghosts. Oh, no, that one. Yeah, yeah. The Bruce man was in it. That was the one where he was invincible, right? Mm-hmm. But also dead. That's why he was invincible. Yes. But he could still drown, as we all know, ghosts are extremely susceptible to drowning. Yes. Which is why haunted lighthouses, they always hang out in the top part. They want to stay as far away from the water as they can. Welcome to Super Superstitious. The paranormal podcast that uh, has all the answers to how ghosts work. And uh, yeah, but no, we look at the spooky and strange from a scientific perspective. I'm Wyatt. I'm Jake. And we're back again this week with a super superstitious special report. The, mm-hmm. what, fifth? I believe it is the fifth the of fifth these. fifth that we will have done. This is, of course, part one where we will lean in on a subject which is missing 411 the those accounts of the weird stuff from david now it's it's politis right david politis, politis. it looks like polides or polides Pol- exactly um <laughs> but it's politis politis and yes david politis is a former cop who by his own narrative became fascinated with sort of trends in missing persons reports across north america and then later on around the world that seem to have these consistencies that are just a little odd. Kind of an oobleck, what did you say? An oobleck, yes. If you hit these consistencies very hard, <laughs> they become very tense and solid-like. But if you allow them to sit in your hand for a while and you stare at them, they... Are a little more liquid-like. Yes, sort of non-Newtonian in a way. <laughs> and in much the same way as a oobleck, he got these conspiracy-ish kind of concepts all over his hands <laughs> and had to wipe them off. On the pages of a lot of books. Uh, like at least five, right? I think so. He's written many books on the 411 cases. He's put the name for Missing 411 out there as like his brand practically. Yeah. And um, yeah, there, there are many interesting accounts. It's always the sort of morbid fascination we all have with people going... <sighs> but uh, he has added to it a sort of, could it be a causal connection that is for many quite alluring and that's what we're going to get into today next week we'll get into we'll break it down more. a little more so of a breakdown that's how these, yeah. these special reports work we the first one is more of a normal episode where we each tell a story on that topic kind of giving sort of the general gist of what that topic is like and then the following week it's taking that topic all apart with some science oh yeah um i forget who goes first today i do believe it is you but before you do i do have one little note i wanted to make oh please just in general if you like the show you should check us out on social media we have all kinds of additional content there we're doing it now we are doing that now we were for certain i actually have remembered that we have a twitter that exists so i've been trying to use that but you yeah you've been um always pretty good about putting additional cool weird and spooky science stuff on facebook do my best and on instagram we have some fun imagery that goes with stuff as well so like for example if uh you thought the sound of us drinking terrible cocktails was fun last week there are photos of those on instagram as well (laughs) and they look worse than they they sounded (laughs) they really do so yeah just keep that in mind and uh with that actually and while we're on the train um if you've enjoyed the show please do just slap a little like and uh stars or whatever on the itunes or i guess apple podcast podcasts yeah um the itunes link will still work uh if that's something that you've used in the past and it'll just redirect you automatically but uh that'll help boost the profile of the show and we would just love to hear from you yeah either a rating or also leave a review just like your kind words mean Mm -hmm. wonderful things to us and yeah it it does increase visibility of this humble podcast 
I like to go to podcasts I like and just write is good. And <laughs> yep. Um would love that as well. <laughs> so anyway, without further ado. Yeah. Take us into some spooky disappearances. I've got a good one. So I've adapted slash scabbed my story from Bob Gimlin. That's Bob Gimlin G Y M L A N, not no relation to Bob Gimlin G I M L I N. Um, of Patterson, of Patterson fame, yeah, Patterson Gimlin fame, the the Sasquatch f- film that people, you know, the you know one. the one. Um, he's a nice young Guys, guy. Come on, nice young guy with a very fun YouTube channel dedicated to perhaps no surprise Sasquatch inquiry, and uh, insofar as this term can be applied, research applied to Sasquatch specifically. Right. So he basically presents armchair cryptozoology content, but has his feet at least partially planted in. Um, primatology and a skeptical, if ultimately Bigfoot natical mind. So I enjoy his telling of this tale because for me it captures all the things that make the 411 file so tantalizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it was this story that first brought my attention to the 411 uh, incidents as a thing. Uh-huh. So uh, further, Gimlin's telling does, in my opinion, great justice to the kind of conspiratorial uh allure that are inherent that's inherent in this case uh so we're hearing an ostensibly skeptical person's take on a very open-ended topic and much as david polides politis <laughs> so i always do, do it yeah, it's oh, so yeah. hard not to do it looks very greek but it sounds very roman <laughs> yes um much as david politis himself uh he does more than a little assigning of narrative under the guise of objective handling of facts only mm-hmm. So, for these reasons, I'd like to tell it largely in Gimlin's style. Uh, it's a great, if as is true of so many of these, reasonably tragic tale. Mm. So, fair warning to any listeners who may be badly upset by the thought of a little boy potentially falling victim to someone or something in the woods, but actually for real and not just creepypasta style. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. And do you get into any of the details of like the particular characteristics that seem to accompany a lot of these? Are we going to do that this week? Is it in your story? Oh, yeah. It's, we may as well... Uh, that is kind of in the tale, but we may as well just lay them out very in, in very plain language now. So, right. Uh, part, part of what Politis is fascinated by are these trends that seem to tie these cases together. So, people go missing all the time, unfortunately. And, and you know, both in urban and rural settings. And Politis has, over the course of his, I guess you could call it research, for years and years, looking sure. into these missing persons cases, found these consistencies among the cases. So, for one, people tend to go missing in what he describes as cluster zones. So, these are like locales that just feature many more missing pe- uh, persons cases than one might expect given just random distribution often national parks right absolutely so the most extreme in fact globally being uh, yosemite park okay furthermore there are uh, striking similarities between the cases so tracking canines often cannot find a scent or mm. or follow a scent um, even in cases where it should have otherwise been quite easy uh, severe bad weather and storms tend to strike an area immediately after a person goes missing spooky yeah right <laughs> Um, if a body is uh, eventually recovered, it's either in a place that was al- already thoroughly searched, so suddenly it's there, or it's in a place that 
simply should not have been possible to reach. So, you know, we're talking like an infant, you know, again, all this stuff is pretty tragic when you really get right down to it, but it's also mysterious. So say an infant walks away from its family somehow, gets lost. They find it an like... infant walks? Okay. It's a <laughs> strong... sprints away. Sprints away. Does a, a tumble, cartwheel, backflip, triple axle, whatever, away. <laughs> it's got a... Ice skates. Ice skates yeah. um, they find it's dead body (laughs) like up a cliff yeah something that would be impossible for a a person of that size shape and age to achieve or in a less dark uh instance there was one um i can't remember the kid's name who was i think two years old and wandered away and then was found really far away and they asked him like how did you get here he's like i don't know and he was fine but he had gone way farther than a small child could have walked or run in that amount of time. Right. And they're just like baffled by how he could have gotten there. And you had no memory of how he got there. And it was just very weird. So just that kind of weird. That kind of, of weirdness. Furthermore, people tend to be found uh, missing clothing, which is something people tend not to do when they're trying to survive unless they're in a very particular kind of survival situation. But the way uh, Politis describes it is as though, you know, if you're just standing there and you literally melted into your pants, <laughs> they're just like flopped down on the ground as if the person was just like magicked out of them. And this is, again, this is the thing he points to. He goes, you know, I'm not going to draw any conclusions. I'm just pointing to the facts. The facts are fucking weird. You guys draw your own conclusions, which of course is the fodder oh yes of the ripest juiciest <laughs> most high-priced organic conspiracy theory you can put your <laughs> fucking dollar to um so he's more recently gone into more urban stuff urban vanishings uh victims and there's a new set of characteristics namely victims are young college-aged men most often they're very intelligent apparently um the majority are out drinking and are somehow separated from friends. Mm-hmm. They are later found dead in a body of water, specifically. Yeah. Uh, they're uh, nearly always, again, missing clothing, especially shoes, and they are found in an area previously that had been searched um, or does not make sense for them. So, again, he's sort of adapting his profile package from national parks, sort of wilderness vanishings to r- urban areas. Anyway. Yeah. There's your backdrop. And as far as the missing clothing thing, too, like there is the aspect of, which we talked about once before, too, when we talked about the Dyatlov Pass incident, which we brought up last week, too. True. But um, in that case, the missing clothing could be attributed to hypothermia and that whole kind of paradoxical stripping thing that right. can happen to you when the blood is leaving your extremities to protect your vital organs and you start to feel a lot warmer, sometimes right. feeling too hot, and then take off layers. Hot damn. Um, but in the case of this kind of stuff, like, oh, shoes that are missing and things like that, it's, it's a little stranger. Right. Particularly given how far away people might sometimes be found in a in a semi-undressed state. In fact, there was one guy, I don't think either of our stories addressed this today, but they found him face down. He got He went missing, searched all over the place, couldn't find him, and then hikers miles away, maybe days or weeks later, I don't know what, found him face down in a body of water the soles of his feet were like worn almost like not to the bone but like you know yeah very horribly badly to the point where it's like what the fuck i think i brought this up on a previous episode because it made me think of the wendigo uh legend anyway so pretty 
interesting stuff. Uh, without further ado, though, I'll ju- jump right into Bob's uh, story. Groovy. I also want to plug his YouTube page, basically, because he did my homework this week um, while I was finishing up a manuscript for publication. Ooh, science. Everyone cross your fingers. Um, yeah, he's got a lot of wonderful confirmation bias stuff <laughs> for people who like Sasquatch. <laughs> um, it's really cool. Definitely check out his page. Uh, so, okay, here we go. <clears throat> This is the story of the disappearance of young Dennis Lloyd Martin. Um, and I would want to make the joke that a boy so nice they named him thrice. But anyway, <laughs> maybe not. Uh, the words often used to describe this narrative are the missing or the disappearance. And though these words are accurate, they are not entirely specific. A more precise word is taken. Dennis Martin was taken by something, and the evidence doesn't really support that something being conventional. What makes the story more disturbing still is that the facts in aggregate have been meticulously collected and supported in the form of first-hand documentation, freedom of information requests, affidavits and testimonials, and interviews. In short, beyond any reasonable doubt, the story is true. Every detail in this comprehensive examination was done by investigator, researcher, and author David Politis. I'll explain the Dennis Martin case and then give some theories and implications behind the work of David Politis and his documentation into the inexplicable circumstances among many who have disappeared. Mm. It was June 14, 1969. Dennis was six years old. His father took Dennis, his nine-year-old brother, and the boy's grandfather to Great Smoky National Park for a day out. The events happened at Spence Field, just on the Tennessee side of the Tennessee-North Carolina border. Spence Field and its surroundings certainly make up an expansive and wild area, but it was not, and still is not, considered a dangerous or high-risk place, as it was accessible and commonly frequented by families and amateurs just trying to get away from it all for a day. Dennis and his brother were playing at the edge of the field, near the tree line, but still visible, and would be visible a ways into the tree line. Another family joined the Martins. They also had a young boy, and their last name was also Martin. Three Mr. Martins watched Dennis and two other boys play that afternoon. This is going to be a math problem. i got to keep track. <laughs> yeah. Dennis was crawling at 60 miles an hour. <laughs> Meanwhile, a train was headed straight towards Dennis from the Atlantic Ocean at 120. Um, Dennis's father saw Dennis crawl into a bush, as he knew his boys liked to hide and then jump out and scare each other. Hmm. Approximately seven miles away, the Key family, a young boy and his parents, asked a park ranger where they could see a bear. They were sent to a place five miles from Spence Field called Rowan's Creek. He just says, you want to see a bear? Okay, I'll I'll expose you to bears now. Here, you want to take these steaks, rub these all over your face, (laughs) hold them out. Um, Back at Spence Field, it wasn't long before Dennis's father had watched Dennis's companions move past the bush that Dennis was hiding in. Mr. Martin realized it had been some time since he had last seen Dennis. So, without taking his eyes off the shrub, he went to find his son. But Dennis was nowhere to be found. Mr. Martin went dashing into the woods and down a trail, the path of least resistance for his son to follow. He was ex-military and in excellent shape. Mr. Martin ran two miles down that hill. He only stopped once he felt he had gone farther than his six-year-old son could have gone under any conceivable circumstance, in twice the time that had passed. He shouted as loud as his rapid breath would permit. He ran two miles back and told his father, Dennis's grandfather, to go tell the rangers down the hill, and Mr. Martin resumed his search. 
five miles away, the Key family had walked to Rowan's Creek. They were enjoying spending some time outside together. Playing with some bears. Playing with bears, yeah. (laughs) They were scratching the bears, riding the bears around. (laughs) It was Father's Day weekend, after all. Ooh, how apropos. Yeah, it's true. Holy fuck. Oh, my God. Actually, there is another interesting thing. Um, There's an AMA that was just held on Reddit uh, with a reporter who covered this story and has done research on it ever since. Mm -hmm. Literally the day I was preparing this material. Oh, my God. And I'm going to bring that up next week because, oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> um, right. So it was Father's Day. Uh, Father's Day weekend, after all. It was then that the Key family heard what Harold Key described as, quote, the loudest, most sickening scream they had ever heard. Ooh. The youngest member of the family was determined to see a bear, so you can imagine how exciting this would have been for him. Oh, no. Minutes after the scream, the boy declared that he could see a, quote, big bear moving around in the bushes up the hill. Mr. Key said that he didn't think it was a bear because it was upright, though it was big. He later described it as, quote, rough and shaggy and in fur. Its shape had led him to believe it was a person strangely negotiating the ridgeline. As it approached, it hunkered down, and the family got the impression that it was hiding from them. Having a hard time figuring out why you chose this particular story, Wyatt. They decided it was time to go. It began to rain, and though the search for Dennis Martin began about an hour before the Key family left the park, they were unaware of the tragedy until they saw the newspaper some days later. Mr. Key sat down with a pamphlet from the park, located at the, uh, looked at the map. <laughs> he located the map. <laughs> <coughs> Find this map on this map. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and decided that the timeline and distance made perfect sense. Their sighting took place some two hours after Dennis went missing and five miles away in a straight shot. Knowing that a child had now been missing for quite some time, and that he may have vital information on the case, he called the park authority and said he could meet them at the ranger station and take them to the exact place where he and his family had saw the rough, shaggy man moving through the bush while trying to stay out of sight. The park authority officials said, no, we'll come to you. And that is one of the many strange actions taken by the search operation. The park service had their hands full. Why would they dispatch officials to the witness who lived hours away instead of taking the witness's offer to go to the exact sighting location? Hmm. Anyone in law enforcement or anyone trying to solve a mystery of any kind should want to be with the witness at the location so that they could literally point to and examine the exact spot where the sighting took place. Hmm. Follow the exact route of the shaggy man. It almost makes it seem like the Park Service didn't want Mr. Key to see anything more of what he had already seen too much of. Oh, boy. As happens with little regard, the hours after Dennis went missing turned into days. Mr. Martin had not left the park and wouldn't leave for 12 days after the disappearance. He even dug up the tree and bush where he last saw his boy. He was just so certain that Dennis never made it to the tree line. Hmm. Two days after Dennis disappeared, as over 1,400 people were combing the area, FBI agents arrived to to monitor the case which can be expected from a missing person's case that was not typical of a search and rescue. The FBI presence is a testament to the general consensus that Dennis did not simply get lost or succumb to some predator. Mm. Five days after the FBI presence, the Green Berets landed and set up a base. They used a private channel and wanted no assistance from the Park Service or local law enforcement. It remains unclear what authority called them in and even more unclear as to why. Do we know anything about whether or not Dennis's um, father, who was 
ex-military had any kind of connections that might have been calling in a favor or something? That's a good question. Um, the way this story is told, it sounds like he was just trying to get information the whole time. Hmm. But yeah, it's not clear whether he might have pulled a string. Most of the Green Berets operations were conducted at night. Multiple Freedom of Information requests have been filed to determine who summoned them and uh, why they were summoned and what their orders were specifically. Hmm. The requests were not denied. They were ignored. Oh. Mr. Key was entirely dissatisfied with the response to his sighting. A boy had been missing for days now, and the rangers went, uh, that went out to meet him couldn't seem to grasp the fact that he could point to the exact location where he saw something large and heard it make a gut-wrenching scream less than two hours after poor Dennis disappeared. Hmm. So, Mr. Keyes went to the press. The story published in the Knoxville News Sentinel was that a, quote, rough and shaggy man was seen on Rowan's Creek hours after the disappearance of Dennis. The story said that Mr. Key thought it may have been a moonshiner, but made clear that the man described was big, shaggy, and in fur of some sort. The article also mentions that the Park Service did not believe there could be a correlation between the disappearance and the rough, shaggy man in fur screaming in the woods. Mr. Martin heard of the Key family sighting from the newspaper, not the Park Service or Search and Rescue, and he was irate. He asked the Park Service if they knew about this. They said they did. He asked why he wasn't made aware. They told him it's irrelevant and that the timeline and distance didn't add up. Hmm. But Mr. Martin walked from the very bush he last saw his son to the location of the Key sighting at Rowan's Creek. It took him an hour and a half. So the Key family sighting made perfect sense. Yet the Park Service said it was irrelevant. But what detail could possibly be irrelevant in the search for a missing son? Right. By August, the Green Berets had cleared out and the FBI soon followed, at least officially. <laughs> but due to Mr. Martin's ambition, the Park Service did not officially end the active search for young Dennis until September. Though, to this very day, Dennis Dennis's case remains open on the Park Service page. Hmm. And then 40 years passed. When David Politis knocked on Mr. Martin's door, Mr. Martin said that he and his wife had promised not to speak about their lost boy in an attempt to reclaim their lives. Mm-hmm. Politis said he's trying to understand what happens to missing people like Dennis. He came a long way. Give him 15 minutes. Mr. Martin obliged and reasserted that throughout the duration of the search, he believed that the Park Service and the search and rescue, the Army and FBI were not being truthful. Hmm. He said with certainty that details were being withheld. He also mentioned how strange it was that no one organization interacted with the other or worked with each other. It was almost as if three separate entities were in a race to come to a conclusion, or perhaps a race to secure something interesting. Mm. Mr. Martin felt confident the Key family held important insight on the disappearance, and yet no one mentioned it to the desperate father. In fact, he had to learn about it in the newspaper. Park Service said the timeline didn't add up, and it's an irrelevant detail. But when there are no leads, any lead is your best lead. Mr. Martin tracked down the reporter who spoke to the Key family about their sighting, Mr. Carson Brewer. Brewer said that though the Key family described something that didn't sound like a person or move over terrain the way a person does, they decided it was a person not only because it was upright, but because it carried something over its shoulder. Oh. At the time, they thought it was a bundle of cloth or clothing, but after reading about the boy's disappearance, Mr. Key knew exactly what it was carrying. Mr. Martin asked the reporter why that wasn't in the newspaper. Quote, No one would have believed it, said the reporter. They would have thought it was a tabloid. 
The newspaper didn't add the fact that the big, rough, shaggy, infer man was seen carrying something in the vicinity of the disappearance of a young boy because of a rhetorical concept called narrative fidelity. Narrative fidelity is used to describe whether or not a story fits into an observer's understanding or comprehension of things, and that's why Politus's work is so controversial in general. Again, these are Gimlin's views, right. but I think it's a useful... Oh, totally, yeah. <clears throat> when a narrative lacks fidelity, or that narrative doesn't fit into an observer's understanding of the world, that narrative is typically rejected, often with great prejudice. And I get it. Why would a newspaper risk its ethical and moral reputation running a story that no one would believe anyway? I'm sure the story they went with was as close to the border as any mainstream journalist would be willing to go, at least in the case of a lost child. Mm. To be clear, though the newspaper that published Harold Key's sighting does mention bizarre qualities, it does not claim that whatever was seen at Roan's Creek was anything but human. Mm -hmm. Mr. Martin told Polites about Jim Reich, a known name to Polites. Reich was an FBI agent in charge of missing children cases for that part of Tennessee and North Carolina. Mr. Martin was in contact with Agent Reich's office from the year Dennis disappeared until Reich took his life some 15 years later. This is a lot of information, so it may be worth going into specific oddities of the case that make it so extraordinary. The first oddity is one that Polites seems personally most confounded by. By his own admission, he fails to describe it properly. This is the coincidental or statistically improbable minor facts of the narrative. In other words, what are the odds? Mm-hmm. Pilates is asked in so many interviews, what are the odds of the Key family holding the proverbial key to the disappearance? Mm. What are the odds that Mr. Martin would be accompanied by another Mr. Martin with a young boy on that fateful day? These things are minor and not integral to the narrative, but the consistency that they occur left an impression on Pilates. I submit if you dive into any subject, you're bound to find ironies and consistencies. But Pilates, in so many words thinks that these anomalies are somehow part of the criteria that he looks for in such cases. He's going to solve the Da Vinci Code here. Yeah, big time. He just needs 23 more clues. <laughs> of course, just because strange consistencies can be found everywhere doesn't mean they don't mean something. And those pieces of strangeness aren't even part of the case. Internal to the narrative, the strangeness is even more heavy. Why did the park authority not take Harold Key's offer to show them the exact spot where he and his family saw something carrying something small through the woods? Even if the timeline didn't add up, which it did, surely that cannot rule out the use of seeing the location, perhaps even getting a dog on the trail. It would lead somewhere. Yeah. Park authority saying, no, don't bother showing us, we'll come to you, is absurd. When you have no leads, you're in no position to turn any away. I'd be upset if I was Mr. Key and my information to help find a missing child was disregarded, and if I was Mr. Martin, I'd be furious. Perhaps they knew the chance of retrieving poor Dennis alive was negligible, and the Key family's piece of the puzzle would only compel Mr. Martin to ask more questions, something no one up top is generally fond of. Mm -hmm. Two hours and five miles away from the last confirmed sighting of a six-year-old boy, three people saw something covered in fur screaming and carrying a boy-sized bundle over its shoulder. But no one talked about it, and no one investigated it, and no one would publish it because no one would have believed it. Another oddity is the observation that Martin told Polites how strange it was that no one organization interacted with each other, or worked in any type of cooperation. Such an operation should surely work in tandem and cooperation. That's one of the marvelous aspects of humans. Uh, individuals in a group become greater than the sum of each individual combined. Individual combined. 
It was almost as if three separate entities were in a race to come to a conclusion, and each group was determined to win that race and do it alone. As if each was more concerned with finding the resolution for themselves rather than finding the resolution itself. Hmm. Which makes you wonder, why? Yeah. Did they retrieve anything? Would they have told us if they did? So what are the theories contrived, conventional, or otherwise? The first, wandering off. I'm sure the local level, at least, would have found this outcome as double-edged. They would like to say he wandered off because it is reasonable and garners no further fear or question. But they wouldn't like the theory because they could not find a six-year-old boy within two hours of his last sighting. Mm-hmm. It's quite a stain on their resume. Over 1,000 searchers combed the area with dogs nonstop for 15 days. Dog combs? <laughs> Even if he uh, wandered off and got lost, they would have found him even if exposure found him first. The second, this is the same reason that animal predation was not considered after some time. There simply would have been a bloody scene sooner or later, and there wasn't. Third, another potential explanation that I'm surprised but pleased they didn't attempt to pursue is that Mr. Martin could have been responsible for the disappearance of his son. Mm. When this kind of thing goes down, usually the victim wouldn't have actually made it to the location. And saying that he got lost in the woods would be to throw the law off the real case. But careful cross-examination of both Mr. Martin, Dennis's grandfather, Dennis's nine-year-old brother, and other Martin family uh, concluded that Dennis was it was in the field on that day. And the last contact uh, anyone had with him was, in fact, Mr. Martin watching him play from a great distance. Hmm. Getting lost, animal attack, and family involvement can be reasonably ruled out. Those are the conventional explanations. <laughs> the following are not. One theory is that in, Appala- in Appalachia, there are populations of people so entirely removed from civilization that they do not associate with any outside of their group, and they live in the wilderness entirely. This has been used to justify the Key family sighting in that perhaps the rough shaggy man was a person dressed in animal hide, which is how the Keys interpreted it. Mm-hmm. And whatever they saw had a lifestyle that kept it clear of any maintained trails, and the, quote, sickening scream may have been a result of someone so removed from society that he may not have had command of speech, resulting in inhuman utterances and exclamations. That sounds more ridiculous than where I know this is going to go. (laughs) Perhaps the Park Service was aware of this renegade population or individual, and that's why the Green Berets were called in. The primary utilization of special forces is to wage, quote, unconventional warfare, and this would certainly qualify. We have to fight the subhuman hill people. (laughs) You know, in all their eyes. (laughs) Two, I don't want to dwell on the next hypothesis, but the world is a cruel place. It has been suggested that an organized group of human predators may, may use the desolation of state and federal parks as a hunting ground. The national parks would provide seclusion required, as well as a supply of vulnerable targets in an area where search and rescue arrived long after the perpetrator and victim are gone. It's sad, but wherever prey is vulnerable, predators will follow. And history has taught us not to underestimate the limits of human depravity. And this yet may be another instance where the Green Berets would be called in. If ever there was a crime worthy of omitting a trial, that may be it. There's definitely been cases of serial killers working in national parks. Oh, absolutely. This could be just a, you know, a, a person making one murder, making a murder, uh, committing one murder in a national park. It doesn't have to be, you know, or is it a national park or is it just a forested area? I believe it's a national park, okay. yeah. But either way, recreational wilderness-ish area, right. uh, outdoor area, that's, yeah, not an unheard of thing to have happen. Absolutely. 
and to his credit he does propose that as like could be that um <laughs> like, yeah this, I'll, I'll i'll pay lip service to this, pay lip service this one, but actually what it is is this yeah <laughs> <laughs> but another theory <laughs> <laughs> the true theory <laughs> did he say that no okay no uh but another theory is that a non-human unverified species comparable to man referred to in popular culture as bigfoot <laughs> abducted dennis martin yeah <laughs> The implication being that the FBI is aware of a certain type of missing person case that matches a specific criteria within given regions. And this motivates all involved to end the case as quickly, quietly, and quite frankly, as misleadingly as possible. If this is indeed why the Green Berets were called in to apprehend and track down a non-human abductor, I wonder if Dennis would have ever made it back home, even if he was recovered alive. And this is one of the many challenges of this report. The Key family thought they saw a person, though they described it as moving inhumanly, not sounding like a human, rough, shaggy, and big. To them, the fact that it was upright and carrying something meant it was human. But some would say that a person is not the only thing in the woods that would exhibit such behavior. <laughs> <laughs> the non-human abductor hypothesis, in Gimlin's opinion, speaks highest of Mr. Martin's observation that no two organizations would work in cooperation. I have no doubt that each one of these organizations was functioning under different orders from different bosses, each with a different motive. And it really makes you wonder who sent the special forces and why. Because it clearly wasn't the FBI or the National Park Service, as they surely would have colluded. None of these explanations really answer the question of how Dennis actually disappeared from his father's sight, though I'd argue one perpetrator on this list would be more capable than the others. There are ways to move that don't register well with the human eye but I'm not sure any human has mastered it. Two of these explanations... walks everywhere. <laughs> that man looks as though he's about to abduct my son, but he's just so smooth. <laughs> Which way is he going? I can't tell. It looks like he's walking towards me, but he seems to be moving further. Dennis, where are you? <laughs> it's horrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> there are ways to move that don't register well with the human eye, but I'm not sure any human has mastered it. Two of these explanations are limited to the same biological configuration, and one is not. And as to the advantages that that biological configuration, I love that he's using this fucking garbledy gook language, has, uh, and as to the advantages that that biological configuration has, I can only speculate, but I'm confident it's overwhelming and something that we would, wouldn't really expect. Mr. Martin claims that he never looked away, but maybe he did. A small mistake with a tremendous impact, something all parents have done at one point or another. Of course, Polites himself doesn't seem to think any of these potential perpetrators are to blame for these criteria-contingent disappearances. In fact, many of his missing cases take place in urban areas now. Of all the research I've done on Polites, and of all the books of his I've read, the best advice he gives the reader on the nature of these abductions is that their cause or culprit is, quote, beyond the comfort zone. In the Twilight Zone, specifically. Exactly, yes. But of course, Pilates' entrance to this field was Bigfoot. He began his authorial career with it, specifically writing The Hoopa Project, which is a book about Bigfoot encounters in California. So what brought him from there to here is a reasonable question, and anyone's guess. David Pilates is controversial. People either love him, hate him, or haven't heard of him. Tensions run high, and nobody is neutral. And I understand the criticism he gets. I really do. Many of the factors of the people that disappear are as follows. Often the victim has special needs or is un unusually intelligent. 
Often these disappearances cluster around places with evil names, such as Devil's Head or Hell's Peak. Often berry bushes are present. The missing will often defy the actions of what missing people are known to do in such situations. And these disappearances are often followed by bad weather, sometimes unprecedentedly bad weather, like raining for 12 days straight. And this is where the criticism comes into effect. I'm not saying it is, but could this just be fallacious reasoning? Perhaps these places are given evil names because it's so easy to go missing there. Are his clusters merely places conducive to getting lost and not getting found? Often berry bushes are nearby. Perhaps this is simply indicative of a healthy ecosystem containing both predators and prey. The missing often have mental abnormalities. Maybe that's why they went missing. The missing defy logic search. Maybe that's why they weren't found. The disappearances are often followed by terrible weather. That wouldn't help the search or the missing's chances of survival. Whether these criteria are part of some greater happening or simply expected in any missing person's case where the victim wasn't found, I can't really say. Pilates himself isn't even certain whether or not these criteria are sufficient to trace a cause. But regardless of the clusters and the coincidences and the criteria, he does cement one point beyond refute. Pilates effectively demonstrates that multiple organizations actively conceal or mislead facts about such people in such places. To me, at least, he proves it, and it makes you wonder why. And it's tricky because I do not mean to suggest for a moment that anyone in the National Park Service or anyone else involved is incompetent or doing anything wrong. I think 99% of all involved are just as confused as everyone else. Regardless of what is happening here, Pilates makes a very good point that something is. There is something being concealed, and sometimes that something seems to be pursued. The why and the what seem inseparable. I don't know what happened to Dennis Martin, but something terrible did. Mm-hmm. The end. Cool. So, yeah. I do like that even though um, Gimlin is clearly a a Bigfoot believer. Oh, big time. He still does give a more balanced approach than I would argue Politis does. Oh, big time. And he, yeah, in in all of his stuff, I mean, he's he's very much firmly in the Sasquatch is an unconfirmed real creature camp. Mm-hmm. And he digs on a lot of, like, primatology stuff, so... His, his allusion to a thing being able to move in a particular way that would be hard to detect mm-hmm. and the glancing away, he's he's sort of nodding to chimps and other primates having very quick information intake where they can seize on a moment where another will look away to charge or do mm-hmm. some activity like this. So, But the strange movement, I'm not sure. Maybe just sort of a <laughs> the moonwalk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's an interesting story and a very, again, true story. Yeah. he's. But the key thing here is he is very much projecting his own version of what he thinks happened onto the situation. Yes. He be, meaning both, both Gimlin and Politis. Very yeah. much. Absolutely. Because Politis, uh, in a lot of the interviews you'll hear of him, which you can find on YouTube, he'll again and again and again go, oh, I'm not going to say... You know, I can't say what it is. I'm not going to draw any conclusions here, but it is fucking weird, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I don't know. I, I'm not, not going to say anything. I'm not going to say what it is. Just weird things. And the people are like, oh, it could be this, right? And he's like, oh, I'm not going to say. And people go <laughs> crazy. quietly mouthing, yes. yes, whatever you want it to be, <laughs> especially if that thing is Sasquatch. Yeah. Or, or, or aliens. Anything. Or aliens. Yeah. Yeah. Or really? et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it goes on and on. Yeah. So. So it's conspiracy just fodder. Exactly, exactly that. That's an excellent example of the kind of of stuff these cases tend to be. So, uh, Jay, what do you got today? 
what I got today, well, guess guess where I got my start from this week. Why? Reddit. Yeah. <laughs> it's either going to be that or Phantom and <laughs> Monsters, but I only use Phantom and Monsters for my dumb bat stuff. <laughs> so this is a story not from the Missing 411 book series, but instead from the Missing 411 subreddit. Oh, I bet you're going to say the Lost 867 or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Missing 401 um, subreddit. Yeah, very good. Very good. I looked there, too, a little bit. Yeah, so this was posted from a throwaway account under the title, Scared and Embarrassed, But I Don't Care Anymore. It's a long name. Well, not, not, not the username. Oh, that was the title. title. Yeah, yeah sorry. Uh, I chose this particular account because I felt that it captures a whole lot of the general ethos of these stories yep. uh, and the direction folks' minds go when hearing them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So instead of it being kind of all the afterwards um, speculation about what might have happened, it's all kind of built into the story itself. Yep. Um, better still, no one dies in this one, so that was kind of nice about it. Because the tough part about researching these is that it's just it's so much. At the end of the day, someone is very likely. Yeah, either died or if they haven't died, something bad has happened to them in yeah. some capacity, and yeah. so that's the thing. It's tough with these. It kind of by the definition of these cases, that's just how it works. It's pretty grim, yeah. So there is a mystery there, and it's fun to talk about mystery and stuff, and it makes for good storytelling. But at the end of the day, it's it's a tragedy, and right? That's right. you know one of the reasons hard we, to make light of. Yes, so that's one of the reasons why you know super superstitious typically avoids the true crime yeah, uh, realm. Exactly that and the absolute saturation of podcasts. I was say, with, you're probably yeah. listening to 15 other podcasts yes, that are covering all, true crime stories. Yes, but in general, it's just it is not our thing. We do other yeah. spooky stuff, and uh, so in a way, it's kind of the point of this special report too is to clarify the difference between supernatural mystery. And real life tragedy. Uh, <laughs> every single report we do. Every no, this, <laughs> I played a play. Yeah. Of if this you go one back in particular, them, you'll find that we're always just delineating between this is a scary thing and oh, someone died. Yeah. Is it ley lines? No. People just died. Is it aliens? <laughs> no. People just died. Is paranormal investigation really based on real science? People died. People guys. just died. <laughs> so go check those out. They're fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, I'll, I'll jump in. This account was posted in March of this year. Oh boy. So I begin to quote. Stumbling on this site, my God, it's like an enormous weight has been lifted off my chest. <laughs> so many years of feeling as if I was crazy, wondering if I'd imagined the entire thing, and now so much relief. There's someone just stumbling across this subreddit. Uh, I don't know to this day what it was exactly I saw that night camping in LBL, land between the lakes in western Kentucky. I don't even know if it applies to anything here on this site. I just know I have found a place where I can perhaps share my experience of that weekend. So, just a fun note. This takes place in the exact same region as that utterly ridiculous Dogman story I covered back in episode 36. Ooh, is land, it also a Dogman? Yeah, if it, if it was, I'd be like, come on, what's going on here? <laughs> this is crazy. So, let's see, back to him. I'm sorry to be using a throwaway, but several friends know my main account, and I've known that sidelong glance can recognize it a mile away when you open up to certain people about something that you know happened but you cannot explain. This guy. See, it might be cowardice, but I can't bear to have one of them give me that look of, are you okay? And instead of, I can't understand what you experienced, but I'm here for you. I like the thought of his friends fucking haunting his Reddit threads and shit <laughs> and just being too, like, yeah. dude, <laughs> what's wrong I with I saw you? your Reddit thread on whatever this one is yes. <laughs> the missing 401 stuff are you okay yeah. <laughs> so it's the main reason i no, no longer talk about it with them and like he didn't in person doesn't want to talk about them about that kind of stuff because he just doesn't like the way it makes him feel not good friends yeah exactly uh, anyway this happened a bit over two decades ago as i said at land between the lakes or lbl 
Enough with your abbreviations. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my dad hunted there regularly, mainly bow hunting. Mm-hmm. And while I was never a hunter, I loved camping in the woods. We never used any formal campsites back then. We, we'd drive along the trace, turn off onto one of the numerous side roads, and then near a creek bed, usually dry or just a small trickle from a spring unless it had drained, we had our usual campsite there. We pulled the car off the road, set up the tent, tarp, uh, tarp it all over, tarp it all over, angled, and Dad would do his thing while I would do mine. Oh, I, I know, they, they'd set up their campsite in general. That's, yeah, that's the gist. Yeah, I'm there. Who cares? Typically, if I went with him, that meant, and this time as well, he'd trek off to his stand and would be gone most of the day. And while he was off, I'd hike a bit, read, or just relax. LVL, while big, is not a place one can easily get lost in if you have basic survival skills. Breathing, drinking water. Exactly. For me, it was a place to go to get away from it all, get lost in nature, which I just said I couldn't do, or in a good sci-fi <laughs> The other kind of getting lost. The other lost. kind of yeah. lost, yeah. Uh, this time, this early morning, my dad had left after a quick breakfast. There was a chill and dampness in the air, the smell of fall coming in. Any of the outdoor types will understand the smell of wet leaves during fall. I mention this only because it will be relevant later. Mm. Anyway, Dad had left, and I whittled some um, some on the hickory staff I had made before heading out for a very early morning hike. I set off in the usual direction, opposite from the road we were near, mostly following near the creek, but not along it directly. I had a compass if I ever uh, if I needed it, but I never did. I'd grown up in the Jackson Purchase, and it was home. I loved nature and never felt uncomfortable out in the woods. Before long, however, cresting a small hill, I heard rustling among the trees. Ooh. While the leaves were starting to fall, uh, more uh, most were still up, fall at its prettiest. I slowed only for a moment. I'm used to those sounds, squirrels typically bounding from tree to tree. Right. But then it got louder, heavy, unlike any sound I've heard trees make outside of them breaking under ice or from age. Mm. It was hard to focus on the sound, like it was coming from all around me, but not. In every direction I turned, I saw trees in the distance shaking as if something large just jumped from them, but Ooh. saw nothing else. Then I was probably 15, and despite years of being in the woods, I felt something I never really had before. Fear. Not terror. That that would come later. But fear. (laughs) Thanks for the heads up. Yeah. (laughs) Almost as soon as it had started, the rattling, violent shaking of trees focused, not in a ring around me, but to an area in front of me, opposite of the direction of camp, and then nothing. No sound at all. Not quiet, but an absence almost. Somehow that relaxed me. I had been exposed to that stillness before, and while the violent rustling of multiple trees felt alien, this was familiar. I thought about going back, until I saw in the distance, near the last tree that shook, a slim, dark figure. I couldn't make her out. Somehow I felt it was a her. But she was up near the ridge ahead, and I felt compelled to head toward her. So I did. I know that sounds crazy, and typing it down now, I still think so. But at the time, I rationalized it as, I wonder if she heard all that too. Perhaps she saw what it was. But as I walked toward her, she slid away, staying just barely visible among the trees. The sky was just starting to really lighten up, that transition from dawn to morning. And slid was the right word, I feel. She moved what appeared to be normally, but the distance she seemed to cover was unnatural. Hmm. I'm over six feet tall, but my strides covered half the distance hers did, and she seemed normal-sized, as normal-sized as a dark, featureless shape could be. I mean, I could see a head, arms, legs, what appeared to be dark but normal clothing, but I couldn't track her. Focusing on her was hard, and outside of knowing it was a her, I could tell nothing else as she appeared and reappeared among the trees. A couple hundred huh. yards ahead of me, walking slowly at somehow covering distances at running speeds. So just like seeming like she was just kind of strolling along, walking, but, like but zooming. Booking, yeah. yeah. Again, I don't know why I followed her, but I did. Down a hill, through some fog, until I neared a clearing. 
I lost sight of her as I neared it, and things got darker, like when the sun crawls behind a dense cloud, except there were none that I could see. But the sun was still too low for me to catch. The stillness, familiar, was there, but that didn't bother me. It was the smell that did. Hmm. Every step closer to the clearing, I noticed it more and more. And though I couldn't find her, and I desperately wanted to find her, it sent alarm bells through me. I've been, both before and since, in the woods hundreds of times. Uh, one thing I have never experienced since that weekend was the complete absence of smell. Nature has huh. a smell, not a stink, but one that is distinct. One of decay and life, of plants and trees and creeks and stagnant ponds. And while, depending on where you are, you may or may not smell the same smells, there always is one of some kind. Uh, except there, in that spot, there was nothing. That lack slowed me, stopped me, and only then did I see her across the clearing looking at me. Oh, boy. Wish I could say she was giant and hairy or alien gray. She looked normal, indistinct and unmemorable except for her smile. When she smiled, I ran. I'd been scared before with the trees out in the middle of LBL, but that, the lack of any smell, sound, and that smile, it terrified me, and I ran. I was crying and terrified, and I had no idea why I should be. I stopped about halfway back, and everything was brighter, and despite my terror, I still wanted to turn around. I looked back, and though she was just a shape again, she was there, closer, freezing in place as I spotted her. A smile again, but one I felt rather than saw, and I ran all the way back to the tent. I got in it and cried, shaking in a terror I did not and could not understand. <laughs> I stayed in the tent until my dad got back, and I didn't tell him about it. By then, the terror had faded, and while I couldn't explain it, I knew something horrible would have happened had I gone into the dark clearing that had no smells or sound. The lack of smell. This is a funny one. It's it's different, yeah. Yeah. By night, I'd almost convinced myself I had half imagined it all. Oh, no. When stepping away from the tent to pee, that stillness came over again, and I froze. Oh, boy. I looked among the trees, but saw nothing at first, until I saw two reddish lights moving in the distance. <laughs> I knew the terrain and knew it had to be uphill from me, but the eyes were descending. I felt they her... They became eyes very quickly. Yeah, well, he put it in quotation marks. It's like, uh, well, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. It's hard to get quotes in my voice, but I'm... <laughs> but I'm the... Yeah. Eyes. 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 But the so-called eyes uh, were descending. I felt her in the sense I had felt it was a woman earlier, coming my way, and I felt a smile that was not a smile, even though I could not see it. Just getting this weird sense that she's... It's just these glowing red eyes coming straight towards him and smiling, yep. even though you can't actually see that. I would die. <laughs> I ran back to the tent and my dad was there, staring into the fire. And when I yelled at him, he just sat there, not responding. I shook him, feeling those eyes, that her, behind, and then even the fire had no smell to it. It was just nothing. Huh. I shook my dad harder, screaming at him, and then suddenly the fire was crackling, I could smell the smoke, and the stillness was gone. My dad asked me what the hell I was yelling about when I told him. He gave me that look I mentioned, that sideways glance that said, are you okay? <laughs> After much pressuring, we left, and while I barely held it together, as soon as I got in my room at our house, I cried. Not because I had embarrassed myself, but because of relief. I knew for a fact, had I not reached my dad, had I not shaken him, that I would have wandered off in the dark, just like I would have wandered off in the morning, following her. She wanted me in that clearing, that clearing that felt wrong and smelled of nothing. I wonder and have wondered so many nights what would have happened. I probably and hopefully will never have an answer. I just pray I never see or feel her again. I've been in the woods since then, both near there and other woods, and it never felt that way again. But still, every time the woods get quiet, I get scared. I don't know if any of this applies to this here, but I hope some of you might understand. Thank you for letting me post here and get this off my chest. 
It's followed me for over two decades, and I don't know what how, I don't know how the fuck you can feel a smile. But that was the most terrifying experience in my life, and I had to get it out. Thank you. Hmm. So yeah, another wow. event, weird event in the woods that might have led to a mysterious disappearance, <laughs> or so the witness felt anyway. Uh, yeah. It's not too dissimilar from the kind of speculation people have had about what would happen if it had let the black-eyed kids into their house, or like, oh, yes. as far as like I don't know what would have happened, but I just I just felt this unbelievable terror. Right, By right. Way, check out that episode nine if you want to hear about those guys. Yeah, there you go. This felt like an appropriate direction to go for today, purely because of that mystique side of of things. Um, but applied here not by a bunch of random people speculating about a real person's death, but instead by the person who had the experience in his own words. Ostensibly. Yeah. Uh, naturally, everyone piled on in the comments saying that they feel like this is a missing piece of the puzzle uh-huh. and shit like that. Like, this is the kind of thing. Like, you figured it out, yeah, dude. Like, you cracked it. Yeah, You're the like, survivor. So a lot people of people are fucking crazy with this shit. That whole subreddit is just people like seeing this in the deepest possible depths of what politis might imply by the stories i will just say i'll talk about it probably more next week too i don't know but that uh reporter i told you about Mm -hmm. who like actually covered the story and has done a lot of work he's got this ama going because it is still an open case and Mm -hmm. they're just like yeah not very long into the ama people start throwing their theories (laughs) at him and he's like being really cool he like gives them pretty snarky kind of (laughs) sarcastic replies and someone's like wow you're like a reporter and you're giving all these sarcastic replies like only to the dump questions <laughs> or like something like this right and i was like nice but people quickly just took it as like a chance to get on their soapbox they were like whatever man you don't know the truth like actually this and that happened i was like oh my god this it's, is so fucking crazy it's amazing when yeah, when i first started learning about the missing 411 stuff actually i think it was only earlier this year like back in january yeah. maybe Someone mentioned that in the comments of a story that I had um, found. And I was like, oh, what's that? And I looked it up. I was like, oh, okay. It's a bunch of these weird, mysterious disappearances. And then you started getting into them and, and, and hearing different stories like that. I didn't realize the extent to which all of it is conspiracy stuff until now. Totally. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Would have been just totally at home last week in last week's conspiracy episode. Right. No, absolutely. And that's the thing, too, is like David, he gets, well, I don't know. We'll save it for next week. Sure. We'll save it for next week. Also, interestingly enough, I wanted to just mention that one of the top comments on this particular post was someone remembering another post from the Missing 411 subreddit from last year in which a guy had a very similar encounter in a park in Illinois. Huh. So a woman with no distinguishing features seemed to be following him at an inhuman speed, totally freaking him out. That's creepy. It's about as long as the account I just read, so I'll, I'll link to it if anyone wants to read it. It's um, It would take too long to cover right now. But, uh, yeah, creepy, weird stuff that almost certainly has no bearing on all the cases Politis has reported on <laughs> in a very similar sense to how all the cases Politis has reported on do not necessarily have any bearing on any of the other cases he has reported on. Yes, indeed. But we will cover that in more detail. As Next we go. week. Yes. Yeah. So that's just kind of a, a sampling of the, the sort of the flavor of the missing 411 phenomena. Indeed. In general. Perhaps some of you guys have these books. I don't. I've only been introduced through really just Polite's interviews. Yeah, there's a lot of interviews. And he always tells like 15 or 30 little stories. <laughs> it's, yeah, so it's like it's a hot tough. take kind of like. I started oh, out trying one, to. This, I started yeah. out trying to go through one of those videos. It was like an hour long video. So like yeah. I, I saved the transcript from it. So maybe I can read through this faster than I can listen through it. Right. And then it was just this huge block of text just rambling everywhere with no punctuation because the automatically generated transcript. So I, like, I had to do that with mine today. Yeah. <laughs> it and, took forever. But you had already listened to part of it because you knew which story you wanted. Is that correct? Oh, or? no. I mean, the the story I... 
use today was from YouTube and did use the transcript function, but there was no, it's still, it's just no yeah, yeah, punctuation. It's, it's, so you have to go through <laughs> and like edit the shit out of it. Yeah. But. but in that case, like I didn't even know what story I wanted. So I was trying to find, oh, totally. find stories within an hour of just continuous text. Like, it doesn't help either that up. he'll tell like three in one go and like, he'll be like, yeah. oh, there's one where this guy did the thing and that he gives you like the hot summary three sentences yeah. or whatever. So then there were listicles, and it's like, okay, which one? Yep. Some of the oh, the most mysterious missing four one one cases, and so right. it's like, yeah, I don't know. We right. may talk a bit about a couple more of the the big ones next week, and sure. start in the context of oh, absolutely, what they could make. So we'll tell you some more about that stuff as we go. Don't you yeah. worry, there'll be yeah. more more fun things to uh, experience as we go. But next week we will be breaking it all down. Oh yes, can't wait. But yeah, I think that's that for that. Yep. Bye. <laughs>